Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome back to What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for KFF Health News, and I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping this week on Thursday, January 4th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by a video conference by Lauren Weber of The Washington Post. Hello, hello. Victoria Knight of Axios News. Hey, everyone. And Shafali Luther of the 19th. Hello. An entire panel of KFF Health News alums. I'm pretty sure that is a first. Later in this episode, we'll have my interview with Boston University School of Public Health Dean, Dr. Sandro Galea. He has a new and pretty provocative prescription for how public health can regain public trust. But first, there was plenty of news over the holiday break. In addition to my Michigan Wolverines going to the national championship, sorry, Lauren, plenty of health news, that is, so we shall get to it. We will start on Capitol Hill, where Congress is poised to come back into session, apparently no closer to a deal on the appropriations bills that keep the government open than they were when they left for Christmas. And now it's only two weeks until the latest continuing resolution ends. Victoria, are we looking at a shutdown again? You know, I was texting a lot of people yesterday trying to feel out the vibes. I think a lot of people think a shutdown seems pretty likely. A reminder that we have another member of Congress that is leaving. I'm on the Republican side in the House. So now the Republicans can only lose two votes if they're trying to pass a bill. So if we do have House Freedom Caucus members saying, hey, we don't want to agree to any appropriations bills without doing something about the border and Democrats unlikely to agree to any border demands that the Freedom Caucus is wanting. It seems like we may be at a standstill. I know there is some reporting this morning that possibly they may just do kind of another fiscal year continuing resolution until... You mean like the last couple of years? Yeah. We've done a full year CR? Yeah, exactly. So The thing they swore they wouldn't do. And Speaker Johnson said he promised he wanted to do that. So it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out. As far as I've heard the latest, there's no top line funding number. But it does seem like a shutdown may be looming. Well, assuming there is a spending deal at some point, and the fact that 2024 is an election year where not much gets passed, a lot of lawmakers have a lot of things they would like to attach to a moving spending train, assuming there is a moving spending train. What's the outlook for the bill that we were talking about all of December um, on PBMs and health transparency and some extensions of, of some expiring programs? That's still kicking around, right? Yeah, that's definitely still kicking around. So there's some extenders like for community health centers and averting some cuts to safety net hospitals. Those are really high priority for lawmakers. I think those will make their way onto any kind of deal, most likely. What seems more up in the air is the transparency measures for PBMs and for hospitals and for insurers. That was the big, as you mentioned, the big passed the House in December. Um, The Senate has introduced their own versions of the bill. And there's talk that maybe some of that could ride onto if there is some kind of funding deal. But it's also possible that maybe it's more likely to be punted to the lame duck session. So post-election when Republicans are trying in the House and Senate Democrats are trying to do their last hurrah before the new Congress comes in. So we'll see. Latest I heard yesterday, there were some negotiations around the transparency stuff. So still possible, but who knows? Congress, the ultimate college student. They don't do anything until they have a deadline. 
Meanwhile, we have yet another health program caught up in the culture wars, this time the Children's Hospital Graduate Medical Education Program, because most medical residencies are funded by Medicare, and because Medicare doesn't have a lot of patients in children's hospitals, this program was created in 1999 to remedy that. Yes, I covered it at the time. Republicans in the House are happy to reauthorize it or just to fund it through the appropriations process, which keeps the money flowing, but only if it bans funding for children's hospitals that don't provide gender-affirming care for transgender minors. It appears that has killed the reauthorization bill that was moving for this year. Is that the kind of thing that could also threaten the HHS spending bill? Yeah, I mean, there are provisions within the HHS bill to ban Medicare, uh, Medicaid paying for gender-affirming care. I don't know. We haven't done much debate on the labor HHS bill. It's kind of been the one that's kind of been put to the side. It didn't even hasn't even gone through the full committee. So we have in the really House, heard- right? Yeah, in the House. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's definitely possible. You know, just broader picture. This is an issue that Republicans are trying to make a bigger thing that they're running on in, in um, different congressional districts talking about banning gender affirming care. So I think even if we don't see it now, it's probably something that we're going to continue seeing. Well, we will obviously talk more as Congress comes back and tries to do things. So New Year, same old abortion debate. This week's big entry is a decision by a panel of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals ruling that EMTALA, the federal law that requires hospitals to at least screen and provide stabilizing care to anyone who presents at their emergency room, does not supersede Texas's abortion ban. In other words, if a pregnant woman needs an abortion to stabilize her condition, she'd also have to meet one of the exceptions in the Texas abortion ban. Given that we don't really know what the Texas exceptions are, since we've had litigation on that, that could be a tall order, right, Shafali? Yes. Doctors have basically said that the Texas exceptions in the state law are unworkable. And I think it's worth noting that what EMTALA would require and what what is in effect in, in other states with abortion bans is again, very narrow. We are talking about the smallest subset of abortions, the smallest subset of medical emergency abortions, because this doesn't apply to someone with a fetal anomaly who cannot give birth to a viable child. This doesn't apply to someone who maybe is undergoing chemotherapy and can't stay pregnant. This is for people who have situations such as sepsis or preterm premature membrane rupture. These are really, really specific instances. And even then, Texas is arguing, and the Fifth Circuit says, hospitals don't have to provide care that would, by all accounts, be life-saving. This kind of puts doctors, particularly in Texas, in a kind of untenable situation where if a woman presents, say, with an ectopic pregnancy, which is (laughs) neither going to produce a live baby and is likely or could definitely kill the woman, if they perform that abortion, they could be brought up on charges in Texas. But if they don't perform the abortion, they could be brought up on federal charges. And this is the bind that doctors have found themselves in over and over again. And I do want to reiterate that this isn't actually unique to Texas, because even in states where the EMTALA guidance is in effect, doctors and hospitals remain very afraid of coming up against the very onerous abortion penalties that their laws have. I was talking to a physician from Tennessee earlier this week, and She made the point that what your doctor feels safe doing, it comes down to luck in a lot of ways. Which city you happen to live in, which hospital you happen to go to, what the lawyers on that hospital staff happen to think the law says. It's really untenable for physicians, for hospitals, and more than anyone else, for patients. Now, despite Justice Alito's hope in his Dobbs opinion overturning Roe that the Supreme Court would no longer have to adjudicate this issue, 
That's exactly what's going to happen. There's already an emergency petition at SCOTUS from Idaho wanting to reverse a Ninth Circuit ruling preventing them from enforcing their abortion ban over MTALA. In other words, the Ninth Circuit basically said, no, we're going to put this Idaho ban on hold to the extent that it conflicts with MTALA until it's all the way through the courts. Not to mention the Mifepristone case that could roll back availability of the abortion pill. Is it fair to say that Justice Alito's reasoning backfired here or was he being disingenuous when he did he did he know this was going to come back to the court? You know, not one of us can see inside any individual justice's heart or mind. But I think we can say that anyone who seriously thought that overturning Roe v. Wade, which had been in effect for almost 50 years, would bring up no legal questions to be answered again and again by the courts clearly hadn't thought this through. I was talking to scholars this week who think that we'll be spending the next decade answering through the courts all of the new questions that have been instigated by the decision. Yeah, that's definitely not going to lower their workload. Well, speaking of Idaho, the Law Dork blog has an interesting story this week about how the Alliance Defending Freedom, it's a self-identified Christian law firm that represents mostly anti-abortion and other conservative groups in court, is now providing free representation to the state of Idaho in its effort to keep its state abortion ban in place. ADF is also representing Idaho in a case about bathroom use by transgender people. Now, conservative organizations and states often work together on cases, as do liberal organizations and states. That is not rare. But in this case, ADF is actually representing the state, which poses all kinds of conflicts of interest questions, right? Lauren, you're nodding. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty wild to see this kind of overlap. As you pointed out, Julie, it's not rare for attorney general's offices to seek outside legal help. That happens all the time. They're understaffed. There's a lot of problems they can address. But to fully turn over a case essentially to an ideological group is is something different altogether because it also implies that that group is giving a gift to the government. It implies that they may be able to take on more cases because if it's for free, then who knows? And I want to point out that this group really is at the forefront of many of the battles that we're seeing play out in health issues legally across the country. I mean, they're involved in a lot of the gender affirming care cases and even in dealing with some of the groups that are promoting some of the legislation in places across the country. So it, this is this is quite a novel step and something to definitely be on the lookout for as we pay attention to many court cases that are going to play out over the next couple of years. Yeah, this was something I hadn't really sort of focused on until I saw this story. And I was like, oh, that is a little bit different from what we've seen. Well, while we were on the subject of doctors and lawsuits and the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, a panel there kept alive a case filed by three doctors against the FDA, charging that it overstepped its authority by recommending that doctors not prescribe ivermectin, an anti-parasite drug for COVID. We've talked a lot about how the Mifepristone case could undermine FDA's drug approval process, obviously, if anyone can sue to effectively get a drug approval reversed. This case could basically stop the FDA from telling the public about evidence-based research, couldn't it? This case is quite wild. I mean, as someone that covers misinformation and disinformation and and has extensively covered the ivermectin sagas over the last couple of years, the idea that the FDA cannot come out and say, like, look, this drug is not recommended, it it would be a severe restricting of its authority. I mean, government agencies are known to give advice, which does not always have to be neutral. Historically, that is what has been considered just the status quo legally. And so for the court to restrict the FDA's authority in this way, you know, if this does, it's obviously still for appeal. So who knows? But if it were to be successful, 
essentially everything the FDA ever put out would have to say, but go talk to your physician, which would lead to a little bit more of a wild, wild west when it comes to evidence-based medicine as we know it today. Back on the abortion beat, the news isn't all about bans. In California, the new year is bringing several new laws aimed at making abortion easier to access. Uh, Shafali, tell us about some of those. California is really interesting because they really position themselves as the antithesis of states banning abortion. And the law that you're discussing here, Julie, this is part of a real concern that a lot of physicians have, which is that in states with abortion bans, it will be harder for medical residents to be trained in appropriate health care. That means providing abortion care. It means providing comprehensive OB-GYN care in general, right? Miscarriage management. You learn how to do that in part by providing abortions. California has implemented a law this year that would try to help more out-of-state doctors come to California to get trained in how to provide this kind of care. I think where this gets tricky and where doctors I've spoken to remain concerned, confused, you know, it's not not a panacea, is the concern about whether any single state in and of itself can do enough to rectify what is happening in 18 states across the country. That's a very, very tall order. And it comes with other concerns of will residents feel safe, able to come to California? Will their institutions want to send them? These are all open questions. And I think this California law, this project that they're taking on is incredibly interesting. I think it'll take some time for us to see both what the impact is and what the the kinks and challenges are that emerge along the way. I was also interested in a California law that says that California officials don't have to cooperate with out-of-state investigations into doctors prescribing abortion pills or gender-affirming care. This is, again, really interesting. And I mean, I think what we are going to see is individual state laws continuing to run up against each other and questions over whose authority applies in what situations. This has come up for doctors constantly, right? The ones who live in states with abortion protections but want to provide care in other states. What happens if they are flying across the country and have a layover in a state with an abortion ban? What happens if they have a medical emergency in a state that they have maybe broken the law of? Whose law applies there? These are things that have left a lot of doctors really concerned. I know I've spoken to physicians who say that even despite the legal protections in their states, in a state like California, for instance, they still don't feel safe actively breaking another state's laws. And again, this is just one of those questions we're going to keep watching and seeing play out who ultimately is able to decide what happens and what role would the federal government eventually have to play. I think these were things, these were kinds of questions that I don't think the Supreme Court really considered when they overturned Roe. There's, you know, so many ramifications that we just didn't expect. And, and I mean, there were some that we did, but this this seems to be an extent that it's gone to that was not anticipated. It's just a whole mess of, if not undesired, then perhaps unanticipated or not fully planned for questions and concerns that are now emerging. So I wanted to call out a survey in the Journal of the American Medical Association about reproduction more broadly, not about abortion, how hard it is for medical students and young doctors to build families early in their careers when time when most people are building their families. Medical training takes so long in many cases that women in particular may find it much more difficult or impossible to get pregnant if they wait until after their training is done. And the pace of medical care delivery and the patriarchal structure of most medical practice frowns on women doing things like, you know, getting pregnant and having babies and trying to raise children. I vividly remember a doctor retreat I spoke at in 2004 when a 30-something OBGYN said that when she got pregnant, her residency advisor accused her of wasting a residency spot 
that could have gone to someone who wasn't going to take time out of their career. I think things have progressed since then, but apparently not all that much, according to this survey. And this, I think, is really interesting because especially after the COVID pandemic, we saw, obviously, healthcare workers leave the field in droves. We saw more women leave the field than men. And what that spoke to was in part that, you know, working through COVID was really taxing. Women were more often in positions that were on the front lines. But what it also spoke to is that the culture of medicine has long been very unfriendly toward the family building burdens that often fall on women. And that hasn't gotten better. If anything, it's gotten worse because childcare is even harder to come by. Moms in particular have way more to juggle and to balance than they once did. And the support, it's not even fair to say it hasn't caught up. It was never there to begin with. And just to add on that, I mean, I find it, it you know, that, that study is great. And I, I will say I have family members that struggle with this currently. It's wild to me that the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends a 12-week parental leave and you possibly couldn't finish your residency or qualify for a surgery residency if you take more than six weeks. I mean, I think that in itself, that factoid, really says exactly what Shivali was getting at. The culture of medicine is not at all friendly to folks that are considering this whatsoever. There's so many women in medicine now. Now it's making a problem not just for the women in medicine, but for everybody who wants medical care. So maybe that will get some attention paid to it. Moving on to this week in private equity, we have another study from the Journal of the American Medical Association. It found that hospitals that were bought by private equity firms had a 25 percent increase in adverse events in the three years following their acquisition. Adverse events include things like falls, hospital-acquired infections, and other harm that in theory could or should have been prevented. It's not really hard to connect the dots here, right? Private equity wants to raise more money, and that tends to want to cut staff. So bad things happen. I see you nodding, Victoria. Yeah, I mean, I think this is an ongoing issue. It's something that the Biden administration has said they want to look into, just like decreasing quality of care in places that are taken over by private equity. I'm not sure there's like a really good solution to it at this point in time. And um, I think it also speaks to the broader issues of consolidation among the healthcare industry and the business of healthcare and what that means in regards to quality for patients. But yeah, I think this study is just another piece in kind of building up a case of why sometimes private equity doesn't always seem to equate to the best care for patients. If we go back in time a little bit, there is more evidence that shows the role that private equity has played in not only reduction in quality of care, but in the opposition between the healthcare industry and and consumers. And the example I'm thinking of is air ambulances and surprise billing by those ER staffing firms, all of which were eventually owned by private equity firms that have their own set of incentives that is at odds with the goal of providing care that people can afford and can access and that keeps them healthy. Indeed. Well, following this week in private equity, we have this week in health misinformation. Uh, My winner this week is Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who was awarded the lie of the year from PolitiFact for not just his repeated and repeatedly debunked claims about vaccines, but other fanciful conspiracy theories about COVID-19, mass shootings, and the rise in gender dysphoria. I will post the link so I don't have to repeat all of those things here. Which brings us to the story I asked Lauren here to talk about, how the anti-vax movement is quietly gaining a foothold in state houses. Lauren, tell us what you found. Well, I found that it's becoming very politically advantageous to some extent. Political clout around anti-vaccine movement is growing. So you're seeing more and more state legislators get elected that have anti-vaccine or vaccine skeptical views. And I went down to Baton Rouge and 
29 folks that were supported by Stand for Health Freedom, which is against vaccine mandates, got elected in this year's off-cycle elections. So who knows what will happen next year, but you're already seeing this reflected in other states. In Iowa, legislators this year stopped the requirement that you could talk about the HPV vaccines in schools. In Tennessee, homeschool kids no longer have vaccine requirements. In Florida, they banned any possible requirement of COVID vaccines, which experts said they worry you just strike COVID from that, that that could lead to the banning of other requirements for vaccines. You're seeing this momentum grow. And as you mentioned, Julie, RFK Jr. has played a role in this. You know, as I talk about in my story back in 2021, he went down to Louisiana and really riled up some anti-vaccine fever in a legislative hearing about the COVID vaccine. And so it's a combination of things. People are reacting to a lot of misinformation that was spread during COVID about the COVID vaccine. And that distrust of the COVID vaccine is seeping into childhood vaccinations. I mean, this year, we saw data that came out that said in the 2022-2023 school year, we saw the highest rate of exemption rates for kindergartners getting their vaccinations. That's a bad trend for the United States when it comes to herd immunity to protect against things like measles or other preventable diseases. So, you know, we'll see how the next year plays out legislatively. But as it stands right now, I expect to see much more anti-vaccine movement in the state houses in 2024. I've been covering the anti-vax movement for, I don't know, 25, 30 years. There's always been an anti-vax movement. It's actually this sort of combination of people on the far left and people on the far right. They tend to, to both be anti-vax. But I think this is the first time we've really seen it come into actual legislating. In fact, the trend over the last couple of years has been to get rid of things like, you know, religious exemptions for families getting their children vaccinated in order to attend public school. So now we're expecting to kind of see the reverse, right? Yeah. As you said, this is kind of a horseshoe political issue that it's been far left, far right. But now it's really seeped into the far right conservative consciousness in a way that has become politically advantageous for some candidates. And so you're seeing stuff that would previously be not even make it to the floor for a vote, have to be vetoed, you know, make it out of committee where it's previously some of these things would have looked at the signs and said, this is just not true. Now there's more political power behind kind of the ideology of some of these anti-mandate freedom pushes. So it's it's really going to be something to track in this upcoming year. I think the other trend we're seeing is actual health officials sort of talking about these kinds of things, led by the Florida Surgeon General, Dr. Latipo. Um, he's now moved on beyond recommending that young men not get the COVID vaccine, right? Yeah. So yesterday he sent out a health bulletin. And I just want to take a step back to say this is incredibly unprecedented because this is a state health officer sending out a bulletin to the state saying that he does not recommend anyone. He, he wants to halt the use of mRNA COVID vaccinations. Now, that is not a position that any other state health officer has taken. Uh, it's not a position that any state health, you know, national health agency has taken. He made it based on claims that have been debunked. He primarily based it on a study that several of the experts I talked to said it is not one that they would base assumptions on. His claims were implausible. But needless to say, I mean, he's the health director for the third largest state in the union. I mean, this is his words carry weight. And he also, um, you know, his political patron is Ron DeSantis. Now, DeSantis has not commented publicly yet on this, but Oftentimes, it seems that they both have worked hand in hand to fight against vaccine mandates and to, to kind of cause a ruckus around things like this. So it needs to be seen the politicization of this as this continues to play out. 
Well, that is a wonderful segue into our interview this week with Dr. Sandra Galea about the future of public health. So we will play that now, and then we will come back and do our extra credits. I am pleased to welcome to the podcast Dr. Sandra Galea, Dean of the Boston University School of Public Health. Longtime listeners will know I've been concerned about the state of public health since even before the pandemic. Dr. Galea has a new book of essays called Within Reason, A Liberal Public Health for an Illiberal Time that takes a pretty provocative look at what's gone wrong for public health and how it might win back the support of the actual public. Dr. Galea, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I want to start with your diagnosis of what it is that ails public health in 2024. Well, I suppose I start from the data, and the data show that there is a tremendous loss of trust in science broadly and public health more specifically. Data from Pew that came out just a few months ago show really a 25-point drop in trust in medicine and in health from before the pandemic. So the question becomes, why is that? What's going on? And what I try to do in the book is to identify a number of things that I think have really hurt us. And I I could enumerate those. Number one, it is we took a very narrow approach to our perception of what should have been done without leaving space for a plurality of voices that weigh different inputs differently. Number two, that through the mediation of social media as a way of extending our voice, we were perhaps inhabited false certitude much more than we ever meant to or much more than we do when we think about our science. And number three, we allowed ourselves to become politicized in a way that's unhealthy. Perhaps partisanized is an even better term because public health is always political, but we allowed ourselves to become blue versus red. And that doesn't serve anybody because public health should be there to serve the whole public. And I think those three big buckets, obviously in the book I wrote, I write about them in much more detail, but I think they capture the fundamental problems that then have resulted in this loss of trust we face right now. So I've had experts note that the lack of public trust in public health isn't necessarily because of anything the public health community has done. Uh, It's because of a broader pushback against elites and people in power of all kinds. Um, Do you think that's the case or has public health also contributed to its own, uh, I won't say downfall, but lack of status? I feel like the answer to that is, is and. Meaning that, yes, there's no question that there are forces that have tried to undermine public health, forces that try to undermine science. And in the book, I'm very clear that I do realize there are outside forces that have had malintent, that they have not acted in good faith and they have tried to undermine public health and science. But that's not what the book is about. I say that is there. I recognize it's there. But I wanted to write about public health from within public health. It would be short-sighted of us not to realize that we are contributing to how public perceives us. In in many respects, I feel like we should have the agency and the confidence to say, well, there are things that we are doing that we should look at. And now, after the acute phase of the pandemic, is the time to look at that. I was clear in my other writing that I did not write this book in 2021 or 2022 intentionally because it was too close. But I feel like now that we're over the acute phase of the pandemic, now is the time to ask hard questions and to say, what should we be learning? And I do that in the book very much looking forward. I'm not naming names. I'm not pointing fingers. All I'm simply saying is we now have the benefit of time passing. Let us see what we should have done better so we can learn how to be better in future. 
one of the things I think that frustrated me as a journalist, as somebody who communicates to a lay audience for a living, is that public health and science sort of in general during the pandemic seemed unable to say that, yes, as we learn more, we're going to change what we recommend. You know, it becomes to the public, well, they said this and now they're saying that. So they were wrong. Does public health need to show its work more? This is the term that I use, which is false certitude, which is that we convey the confidence when we should not have conveyed confidence. Now, there are many reasons for that. Things were happening quickly. It was a fast-moving pandemic. Everybody was scared. And also, our communication was mediated through social media, uh, which was a new medium for communication of public health. And that does not leave space for the asterisk, for the caveat. And I think our mistake was not recognizing how much harm it was going to do and not being upfront about this is what we know today, but tomorrow we may know more and we may then have to change our recommendations. And as one pauses and thinks about how should we do better, surely this is front and center, to learn how to communicate by saying, today, based on what we know, this is what we think is best, but we reserve the right to come back tomorrow and be clear, tell you that the data have changed, hence the recommendations have changed. Do you think public health has been slow to embrace things like social media? I mean, there are organizations on social media. One that comes to mind is the Consumer Product Safety Commission, the National Park Service. I mean, that they're very cheeky, but they get out really important information in a very quick and understandable way. Is that something that public health needs to be doing better? Perhaps. I'm, I'm not sure I'm willing to say that public health is any worse than the National Park Service on social media. I think we're all as a society struggling with communicating important facts rapidly in a time of crisis. You, well, one analogy which I use in the book is the analogy to 9-11, meaning in 9-11, it was the first national crisis that was lived through in a time of 24-7 cable news. And as a result, there was a lot of noise on cable news that was happening that was distorting how we dealt with the event. Similarly, COVID-19 was the first national crisis that was lived through, through the lens of social media. And we did not really know how to use it. So at the same time as I'm labeling this as a real challenge of public health faced, I'm also trying to understand and uh, have the compassion to realize that in public health, we were struggling to learn how to do this as everybody else was. So let's turn to the future. What should public health do first to try and sort of regain some of the trust that it's lost. Well, I suppose first we should be having this conversation and uh, I'm grateful to you for having a conversation, but I actually mean that at a large scale. I, I actually think that uh, I meant my book to be a place marker and I say in it clearly, I expect people will disagree with elements of the book and that's okay. And I hope that the book encourages others to write their books that talks about the things, how they see it. Because I do think that this conversation should open up space for public health to say, what are the things that we didn't do well? What are the things that we should do better? Because from that is going to emerge a new consensus about how we should act. If the only thing that emerges is simply this, what you and I just talked about, which is communicating with due humility, recognizing the complexity of rapidly evolving facts, and being clear with the population that things may change. If that's the only thing that emerges, we've already made progress. So I think the first thing that should happen is having the conversation opening this up, being honest that there are things that public health did that it should do better. That is going to lead us to a new consensus about how we should do better. 
and beyond the conversation, is there one thing that you wish that policymakers could do that could help public health regain its prominence and its trust? I mean, there really is no other word here. I think the one thing that I would want to see in policy is a moving away from abolition of the notion that we can, quote, follow the science. One of my least favorite things that happened during the pandemic was this notion that we could follow the science. Now, why do I say that? I'm a scientist. But I say that because follow the science implies that science leads to linear answers, to linear solutions. And that phrase follow the science became a fig leaf for policymakers. Say, well, the science says we should do X, therefore we're going to do X. That is simply false. Policymaking should rest on multiple inputs, science being one of them, but also values, but also the importance of other sectors of the economy. And I would like us to see as a society being honest about that, that policymaking should take science into account centrally. I agree with that. I, as I said, it's my bread and butter. It's what I do. But to pretend that science has the answer is simply wrong. We elect people in elected positions, and there are people who are appointed in decision-making positions in other circumstances. It is their job to weigh all the inputs, science being one of those inputs. Well, Dr. Galea, thank you so much. I will do my part to keep the conversation going. I'm sure you will do yours as well. I will, and thank you for doing the part you're doing. Okay, we are back, and it's time for our extra credit segment. That's when we each recommend a story we read this week we think you should read too. As always, don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links on the podcast page at kffhealthnews.org and in our show notes on your phone or other mobile device. Uh, Shafali, why don't you go first this week? Sure. My story is from STAT by Nicholas Florco. The headline is Medical Marijuana Companies Are Using Pharma's Sales Tactics with Little of the Same Scrutiny. And I think this is such a smart investigation, and I'm, I'm just so grateful that Nicholas wrote it. It really gets into the fact that medical marijuana is a tremendous industry now, right? It's not just in, you know, the, the Colorados or the Californias or Massachusetts that you think of. It's all over the country, and it's a huge business. And because it's so new, it hasn't gotten the same scrutiny in terms of how it markets its products to consumers, the relationship it has with providers, et cetera. I think this is just a really important topic, and it's something that we should all be paying attention to as the industry continues to grow in the coming years. Yeah, indeed. Victoria? Yeah, so my extra credit this week is a Politico story by Megan Messerly and Robert King titled, Georgia Offered Medicaid with a Work Requirement, Few Have Signed Up. And so it's kind of talking about just the rollout of Georgia implementing a work requirement or their Medicaid program, which has, uh, they did expand Medicaid, but they included a work requirement. So I thought this was kind of just uh, really stunning. It said, through the first four months, only 1,800 people have enrolled when the governor, Brian Kemp, expected 31,000 people to sign up. Contrast that with North Carolina, which expanded Medicaid without the work requirement, got like 200,000 people to sign up. Yeah. So that's just kind of a stunning number. And they're kind of talking about in the story there. They're not sure why all the reasons are, but part of it is that there is a lot of paperwork involved. And so it kind of, I think, was just a really interesting example. Obviously, we have seen work requirements play out before, but um, we haven't seen it in a while. And so it's interesting to see how difficult it can be for people to access Medicaid if this is put in place. And I also think it's important to remind people that last year in 2023, during the, the debt ceiling debate, Republicans did for a while talk about wanting to implement work requirements in Medicaid again. And so if this was something that uh, they put into place, it, it would mean probably a lot of people would drop off the rolls. So it's an idea that uh, resurfaces. So just important to remember that. Indeed. Lauren. 
I was obsessed with uh, Greg Joffe's story from the Washington Post uh, titled, Can the Exhausted, Angry People of Ottawa County Learn to Live Together? And it's this incredible portrait of this Michigan county where the county public health officers, Adeline Hambly, has come under tremendous pressure and threat from the conservative county board. And this is a story we have seen play out in different iterations all around the country in the wake of COVID. It's the we don't believe in masks, we don't believe in shutdowns versus the county public health folks who are trying to follow the science. And how does that play out at a people level, which Greg just does a fantastic way of showing. And it's interesting, the board was so fed up with her and making such political statements that they offered her $4 million to quit. Now, this fell apart because the county doesn't seem to have the money that would affect them, et cetera. But it just goes to show how deep the divisions are between what used to be a very non-politicized normal government job of being a public health officer who keeps your water safe and tries to keep you from catching bad diseases at restaurants to the post-COVID era where just absolutely vilified and 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 hated really it seems in some of these comments in the story that so much so that they would be paid this much money to quit. So I think this speaks a lot to the tension that we see in America around public health today. And I really recommend everybody give it a read. Yeah, it's a really remarkable story. Well, my extra credit this week is from our podcast pal, Alice Olstein, along with her colleagues, Jessica Piper and Madison Fernandez at Politico. It's called Why Democrats Can't Rely on Abortion Ballot Initiatives to Help Them Win. And it's kind of a warning for Democrats not to get too smug about the popularity and success of abortion rights ballot measures around the country. They dug into the numbers and found that in many of those states, the very same voters who supported the abortion rights measures also turned around and voted for Republican candidates. As usual, in politics, things are rarely as simple as they seem. All right, that is our show for this first week of 2024. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us, too. Special thanks, as always, to our technical guru, Francis Ying, and our editor, my fellow Wolverine, Emery Hudeman. As always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can still find me at X, at jrobner, or at julierobner at bluesky, and julie.robner at threads. Shafali, where are you these days? I am at Shafali L on X and Blue Sky. And then on threads, I am at Shafali.Luthra. Victoria. I'm at Victoria Regis K on X and threads. Lauren. And then I'm Lauren Weber HP on X. And clearly still need to work on my social media game. We will be back in your feed next week. Until then, be healthy. Be healthy.